Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We'll begin with verse 17. Luke 5, 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. There are three points to this sermon. The first one is a dual attack, a dual attack that the Lord endured. The second is, uh, what does this text say to us about friends? And then the third is, what does this text say to us about forgiveness? Now, the forgiveness is the main point of this text, but along the way, we see some very important truths that are taught, and the first one has to do with this dual threat that uh, the Lord Jesus faced. And in order to see the dual nature of this threat, it's necessary for me to remind you of the way Mark starts off his description of this same event. You don't have to turn there, but you can find it in Mark chapter 2. And there Mark describes how that there was a great multitude that was around Jesus. Luke starts off with saying the scribes and the Pharisees were there. And I think that this is a, a twofold temptation. There is, on the one hand, a temptation to please the crowd, and on the other hand, there is a temptation to please the critics. So when uh, when there is a, a large crowd, there is a temptation for whoever is getting the attention, in this case Jesus, to say, oh, I like all of this attention. I like the way these crowds are coming in. And so I'm going to be sure that I do not say anything that is offensive that would drive these crowds away. I want to make the message as as palatable as possible. I want to make the experience as enjoyable as possible 
so that these crowds will keep coming. On the other hand, there is a temptation to please the critics. Uh, when, when someone is a gifted person, as Jesus was, it's only natural that he wants other important people to recognize his giftedness and to approve him. But I think that both of these, both of these temptations come back to the same root cause, and that is the fear of man. So the fear of man means that you, you're more concerned about what people think than you are concerned about what God thinks. And most Christians, sometime during their life, and many churches and most Christian institutions will face temptation from one or from both of those quarters. In the Old Testament, we read how that... Uh, so I'm going to tell you a story about a man who resisted those temptations. And this is about King David. So there's a story about King David in the Old Testament. And it uh, relates to his bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now years before David had become king, the, the, the people of Israel had taken the Ark of the Covenant into battle thinking that it was something like a good luck charm. There's no way that they could possibly lose the battle if they've got this powerful good luck charm with them. But much to their surprise, the Philistines were actually inspired to fight harder because the God of the Israelites was there. And so they fought so hard that they defeated the Israelites and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. Now, while the Ark of the Covenant was in Philistia, God sent plagues against the people of Philistia and they thought maybe it was just coincidence or maybe it was something else. And so they performed a, a couple of tests to make sure that it really was the presence of the ark that was causing all of these plagues. And uh, it was, and so they sent the ark back to Israel. And it came into the, the house of a man who uh, was greatly blessed because he had the ark of the covenant. And David heard that the, uh, this house, the man, this man's house was being greatly blessed. And so he, uh, he sends a contingency of Israelites to go and get the Ark of the Covenant and take it into Israel. And David had not, apparently, he had apparently not carefully investigated the instructions that God had given for transporting the Ark. Because God had instructed that the Ark should be carried by men on their shoulders, that there would be uh, covering, covering over the ark so no one could see it, but there were rings on the corners of the ark and they would insult, insert poles into these rings and then four men would carry the ark of the covenant on their shoulders. I say apparently David had not carefully studied that because he decided that a new cart would be a good thing and so they put the ark on a new cart and they started taking it to Jerusalem. And along the way, the oxen stumbled, and the ark was in danger of falling off, and a man named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. And when he touched the ark, he was smitten dead. And so you can imagine how that uh, placed the damper on the festivities. Uh, Uzzah suddenly is, is smitten dead. And so David is uh, perplexed. How can we possibly bring the ark up to Jerusalem? And so they sidelined the ark, and it was accepted into the home of a man named Obed-Edom. And uh, once the ark was there, God prospered and blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And David heard about that. This time he did his research a little better, 
and he goes to take the ark out of the house of Obed-Edom. And along the way, while it is being carried in the proper way that God had prescribed, David is so filled with joy that he is dancing with all of his might before the Lord. He's dancing with all of his might. And as he comes into Jerusalem, his wife, M-I-C-H-A-L, I always pronounce it Michael, could be Michelle, but Michael. Michael looks out of the window and she sees her husband, King David, dancing with all of his might before the Lord. And Michael despises him in her heart. And then after the ark is uh, safely stowed and the celebration is concluded, David comes home and Michael comes out to meet him. And she, <clears throat> and she is going to set him straight. And so she says, oh, wasn't my lord the king dignified as he danced and uncovered himself before the servant girls of the slaves of Israel today? She's just letting him have it. And David says, it was before Yahweh that I was dancing. And I will be more despicable in the eyes of the people of Israel. And I will be despicable in my own sight because I'm going to worship the Lord. And uh, the, that chapter concludes with saying, <clears throat> Michael <clears throat> never had a child the rest of her life. I don't know if that's because David... Uh, kept away from her or if God closed her womb so that she couldn't have a child. But in that story, we see David saying, I am not trying to impress the crowds and I'm not trying to impress the critics. I have my eye focused on celebrating before the Lord. And in this passage of scripture, we see the son of David, Jesus, doing the same thing. There were all of these crowds who were impressed with the, what they probably thought of as magic tricks of healing that he could do. And so there were hundreds and sometimes even thousands of them who gathered around him. And Jesus would never completely capitulate to giving the crowds exactly what they wanted. <clears throat> you may recall, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, On the following day, many of them who had constituted that crowd, who had eaten from the miraculously multiplied five loaves and two fish, they followed him to the other side of the lake because they wanted to eat again. And Jesus refused to feed them the second time. Instead, he told them, do not work for the food that spoils, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And we find this repeated again and again in the life of Jesus. People want to see him People want to see him do healing. They want to see him do miraculous signs. And sometimes Jesus just flat out says, no miraculous sign is going to be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, even so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was always focusing the attention of the multitudes back to the central thing, which is the gospel. The forgiveness of sins the reconciliation with God. He was always bringing them back to that again and again. And sometimes the people got tired of it. And it says at the conclusion of John chapter 6, when Jesus had refused to feed them a second time, from that time, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus 
turns to his disciples and says, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We, we can't go. We don't, know, we don't understand what you're saying. We don't necessarily like it. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What does that mean anyway? But we know that you have the words of eternal life. We cannot leave you. But the crowds did. The crowds left. And the crowd would have waves of enthrall and fascination with Jesus, the way that our people today might have uh, some kind of a, a big mob if, if an important politician or a popular singer or actor would suddenly show up. And that's the way they regarded Jesus. I think that was probably the spirit on uh, the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people come out waving branches and there are probably thousands of them waving branches and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, probably some of them were also in that crowd that was saying, crucify him, crucify him. It says in John chapter 2, while he was in Jerusalem, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Then it adds this, but he would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man. He knew what was in a man. Jesus was able to recognize that the approval of the crowds is fickle and at best it's temporary. I am not going to live so as to attract crowds. There are many churches who fall into the trap of saying, we're going to find out what people want, and then we are going to do that. And I don't think that in order for a service to be spiritual, it has to be boring and painful. But I do think that it's a terrible mistake to say, we're going to find out what the world wants, and then we're going to do that. Does the world like a certain kind of music? Well, we're going to play that kind of music. Does the world like a certain kind of lighting, special effects? Then we're going to have those kind of lightings, and we're going to have those kind of special effects. Is the world intolerant of uh, strict rules? Then we're going to stay away from strict rules. We're just going to say it doesn't matter. We're just here about love and, and uh, let's don't get down to details. And that's the, sort of, that's the sort of churches and the sort of preaching that can attract large crowds. Now, I'm not saying that every church that has a large crowd is, is compromising the truth. Certainly that's not the case. And May the Lord be pleased to continue to grow us here at Bullet Lick. But may the Lord continue to keep us faithful and, and never shy away from saying clearly what the Bible teaches and keeping the gospel the main focus of our ministry. Now, there's another temptation. I said this is a dual temptation. The first temptation is to try and please the crowds, and Jesus resisted that. But there's a second temptation, and that's to try to please the critics, so, uh, possibly the most intimidating place to preach in the world is chapel service at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. <clears throat> because if you think about it, that is probably the most theologically educated group in the world that day. So, there might be five or six hundred people who are gathered there faculty, people who are getting advanced degrees in theology. And it can be intimidating to preach in those circumstances. 
<clears throat> and I've seen some people make a make wreck a wreckage of it because they try to preach to scholars. And what I've observed through the years and even experienced myself is if you preach to the people who are gathered in that chapel service like they are hungry people who need to be fed, then you're going to do okay. It's those people who preach, just just preach the Word of God and not trying to be impressive that do the best. But it is a temptation. It is a temptation to try and impress people that you think are smart people, people who are going to pick up on your every error. <clears throat> Several years ago, I was uh, teaching. I taught for one summer at uh, the Governor's Scholars uh, here in Kentucky. And uh, I think that I was a little too bold in my gospel witness, so I never got invited back. But I had a good year, that year, you know, six weeks of, uh, of, of preaching to those students day after day. And one evening after supper, I was uh, witnessing to a couple of students. So these students are just 16, 17 years old, juniors who are about to become seniors. And I was, I was just getting ready to unfold the gospel when the speaker for that evening came and sat down with us. So there were just, the, the cafeteria was empty, as I recall. There were just these two or three students, myself, and then in comes the speaker, who's president of a university. She comes in and she sits down. And so immediately I'm confronted with the temptation, should I go on with the witness? And I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to go ahead. And so I just laid out uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and why Jesus is the only way to, to be saved. And the president of the university was, was silent. But that night she was the featured speaker at our assembly. And she said, if you meet someone who is seeking after truth, you should try to be friends with that person. But if you find someone who thinks he has found the truth, you should run like crazy to get away from that person. And, uh, of course, she was referring to me, someone who thinks that he has found the truth. But, but what a ridiculous sentiment. It's, it's noble to look for truth, but somehow you're a psycho if you think that you have actually found the truth. Well, if that's being psychotic, then we are because we think we have found the truth, and Jesus is the, the truth. But there's that, that little temptation. I, I want to impress this smart person. When I was first converted at age 14, I was invited to... Uh, go teach at a church camp. And at that church camp, there was a young man who had just graduated from high school, and he was really smart and really cool. He listened to jazz music. That says it all, right? He listened to jazz music. And for two or three years after that, I wanted to learn how to appreciate jazz because this young man that I admired so much was, uh, was so cool. And, but he, he was not a Christian. I think I can say that with a fair amount of confidence. <clears throat> even, <clears throat> even though he was working at a church camp and fulfilled his responsibilities there, I don't think that his affections were turned towards the Lord. And that's a very dangerous friendship to be in. That friendship where someone is a professing Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah, we believe, we believe these things about Jesus. But then 
every thrust of their heart, every motion of their life is away from the Lord. That's a very dangerous friendship. I'll say more about friends in just a minute. But I think that this dual temptation, the temptation to please the crowd, and now I'm talking about the temptation to please the critics, is the main reason why theological colleges and seminaries persistently drift into liberalism. Because those who teach at uh, Christian colleges and Christian universities usually want their college to be accredited. And one of the things that helps with accreditation is that the faculty and administration are reading papers at academic conferences. And so uh, they want to produce papers that are going to be accepted, to be read at the conferences. And there's just always this temptation to steer away from Sunday school. It's like, that's the biggest insult. This is not a Sunday school class, these theological professors will sometimes assert. A couple of years ago, <clears throat> my daughter came home from college with an assignment. It was, uh, it was uh, issued by someone who no longer teaches there. And, uh, but a good man, I knew him, friends with him. And so on this research paper... There are some stipulations. You may not use resources, and he mentions three resources, and one of the resources was Matthew Henry's commentary. You may not use Matthew Henry's commentary. Well, I happen to be a great admirer of Matthew Henry, and uh, Matthew Henry is probably, if you ask me what, what commentary should I get, I'm going to say Matthew Henry. So, uh, like I said, I was friends with this prof, and so I sent him, uh, I sent him an email. And I said, what are you doing forbidding them to use Matthew Henry? I mean, you would be thrilled if they were quoting Karl Barth or Bultmann or Schleiermacher. You, you guys don't know who that is, but these guys do. They're probably not even Christians. And I said, but you, you're th- you would be thrilled if they were quoting from these sources that are written by guys that may not even be Christians, but you don't want them to quote from Matthew Henry? And uh, he said, oh, that was the stipulation of my greater. <laughs> what an evasive move. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's just the point that I'm making. There's this, there's this constant temptation to always be saying, what are the smart people going to think about this? What is this guy who likes jazz music? What's he going to think if he hears me playing this little simple chorus praising Jesus? He's going to think that's lame. I'm not going to do that. I want to try to impress him. Many of you will have heard of Adoniram Judson, the first foreign missionary sent out from America. Uh, Adoniram Judson went to a college where he fell under the influence of a group of friends who believed in deism. Deism is a theological perspective that says God is not really involved in the world. He just kind of created everything, set it in motion, and now he's letting everything unfold. That's deism. And among this group that had been especially influential on Adoniram Judson, there was uh, a man named Jacob Eames, E-A-M-E-S, Jacob Eames. He was the most winsome and influential of the group. Well, Adoniram Judson was very bright. When he graduated from college, he was not a Christian. And so he went to New York to try and make his fortune as a writer of plays. He was unsuccessful, and so he begins heading for home with his 
tail tucked between his legs, defeated, still not a Christian. And along the way, he, uh, he can't make the trip in one day, so along the way, he stops at an inn. And he goes in and he says to the innkeeper, I'd like to get a room. And uh, the innkeeper says, ah, the only room I've got is next door to a young man who is dying. And he's, he's groaning. And Judson said, I am so tired. I don't think that's going to bother me at all. I'll take the room. And so he takes the room. And sure enough, he can hear the groans of this dying man in the adjoining room. And he, in spite of himself, in spite of his deism, says, I wonder if he's prepared for eternity. And then he chided himself by saying, what would my friends at school think about this? What would Jacob Eames think about this? And so finally he drifted off into a troubled sleep. <clears throat> the next morning, as he's paying his bill and leaving, he asks the innkeeper, what happened to the young man next door? Oh, he died during the night. And Judson said, who was it? The innkeeper said, oh, it was a young man from the college. His name was Jacob Eames. This man that had been so influential on him, who had led him into a way of thinking that doubted God. He died right next door. It shook up Judson so much that it resulted in his conversion. But there's that, there's that temptation to be pleasing to the critics. Jesus resisted this dual temptation, as we will see as the passage unfolds. Then I want you to see in this passage of Scripture some things about friends. So it's very important that we think about friends. Perhaps you have heard uh, the old saying, it's a good one, uh, be careful of the friends you make because your friends will make you. Now that's not in the Bible, but this is. Evil, con evil company corrupts good morals. But then this also is in the Bible. He who walks with the wise grows wise. The influence of our friends upon us is profound and we ought to give some deliberation as to how we cultivate friendships and those friendships that we maintain and what it takes to maintain them. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Mark says that there were four of these men who uh, carried this paralytic man to lay him before Jesus. Luke doesn't specify the number, but we know from Mark that there were four. And the first thing that I want you to notice about these men is that they were considerate. They had a friend who was paralyzed. None, none of the men or the man say anything in this, in this narrative. It's possible that the man himself could not speak. It may be that his paralysis was so far advanced that not only was he debilitated as far as uh, locomotion, that he couldn't get around, but also it may be that his his, his paralysis had even extended his organs of speech. But he had four friends who weren't just thinking about themselves. They thought, I'm, we're going to go and get our friend and we're going to take him to the healer. We're going to take him to Jesus. And so they do. The first thing is they were considerate. And then secondly, they were determined. Because when they get to the house where Jesus is speaking... Usually in these houses, there was only one entrance, 
And not only was the house filled, but the crowd was spilling out into the street. I can imagine that they may have tried, excuse me, we'd like to get through with our friend. And people turn around and say, well, yeah, like everybody wants to get in. Excuse me, he's paralyzed. Yes, but my friend is is deaf. And so they couldn't get in. But they didn't give up. And so they decided that they were going to go up on the roof. Now, at this point, let me describe to you how houses in in Palestine at this time were built. Uh, There was one entrance, but sometimes there was a courtyard in the middle. And over the courtyard, there was something like a little porch roof that would extend partway. So that people could sit out there in the courtyard and the, the porch roof would shelter them from the sun, but they could still enjoy the fresh air. Jesus was probably preaching in the courtyard. And uh, these guys get up on the roof. There were usually were stairs going up some houses. If this one never had stairs, then maybe the adjoining one did. And they were built close enough together that they were able to carry their friend on his bed to the place where they can look down and they can see Jesus. And then one of them says, you know, if we let him down through the roof right there, it'll be right in front of Jesus. And so the other, the other three agree. And so they carry him out onto the roof and they remove some of the tiles. And I can imagine that this would create quite a bit of uh, attention. People in the courtyard and people around the house would start murmuring, what's going on, what's going on? And maybe even Jesus himself looks up And he sees these four smiling faces looking down. I think Jesus probably smiled at them too. And then they get their friend and they lower him down in front of Jesus. They were considerate. They were persistent. They were audacious. But here's the thing I want you to see. They brought their hurt friend to Jesus. Now, here's a question that I want to ask you about friendship. Do you have these kind of friends? Do you have friends who will consider you? Do you have friends who are going to do their best to take you to Jesus when you are sick? Or are they going to propose something else? I don't mean just physically sick. I mean when you're down and out and you need help. Do you have friends who are going to metaphorically carry you to Jesus if you can't get there yourself? Let me ask you this. Are you that kind of a friend? I think that every friendship, I mean every real friend, not every acquaintance, but every real friendship that brings us joy and gladness needs to have one of these two characteristics. One is you have the kind of friends who are going to carry you to Jesus or you're cultivating a relationship with them with the intention of carrying them to Jesus. And some people might say, that's such a mercenary view of friendship. You mean you're being friends with someone for the express purpose of helping them to become a Christian? Let's keep that question in your mind for a minute. Let's suppose that you have been friends with someone for two or three years, and at the end of two or three years, he says to you, 
Now, all this time, I have been cultivating friendship with you for a specific purpose. I mean, I've enjoyed you and everything, but the main reason that I have cultivated this friendship is I wanted to see if you were worthy to be the heir of my fortune. I have, I have millions and millions of dollars, and uh, I, want, I want to leave it to someone. In fact, I want to start giving you a million dollars right now. You say, hold on for a second. You're being such a mercenary. I don't want to be friends with you. If your main goal is just to give me money, I don't want to be friends with you. No, nobody's going to say that. You're going to say, well, I'm flattered. Fork it over. (laughs) But yet we feel like it's being mercenary if we cultivate friendship with someone for the purpose of leading them to Jesus. Now, don't be fake about it. Really love the person. But always be looking for opportunities. How can I show ultimate love to this person and bring them to Jesus? In our Sunday school class this morning, we read about someone who is called the friend. You see me doing air quotes. The friend of Amnon, David's oldest son. Amnon had a, had a lustful desire for his half-sister, Tamar. He couldn't figure out how he was going to be able to satisfy his lust. But the Bible says, but he had a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab counsels him. Here's here's the way that you can get Tamar into your room and satisfy your lust on her. It's a terrible story. You can read about it in, in 2 Samuel chapter 13. But that's, that's the influence of an evil friend. An evil friend leads you away from the Lord. A good friend leads you to the Lord. Now let's conclude with where this passage concludes. So we've seen the dual threat that Jesus avoided. The threat of trying to please the crowds on the one hand or trying to please the critics on the other. The blessing of friends who are considerate, who are persistent, who are audacious, and who will bring you to Jesus. And then the Bible says that when they let down the bed, Jesus looked up. And when he saw their faith. Now that's always arrested my attention. He saw their faith. These guys are looking down. I can imagine that there's a smile on their face. Maybe some exchange of waves or however they greeted one another. But Jesus can see that they have faith. Now Jesus can see things like that. I can't. I try to do my best. You know, when I'm, when I'm interviewing someone, I ask you questions about your walk with the Lord and how, what is the gospel. And you can give the right answers and fool me. You can't fool Jesus. Jesus can look and see whether or not you have faith. And these guys did. And it may be even that they kind of let uh, the man over the hole in the ceiling a little bit and he looks over at Jesus, and Jesus can tell that he's deeply troubled, and he is paralyzed, but he also has faith. And so when they let this man down in front of Jesus, first thing Jesus says to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. They brought him there to get healed from his paralysis, But Jesus apparently saw something that was troubling him more deeply than his paralysis. 
he saw that this man was troubled about his sin and that the guilt of his sin was a more debilitating disease spiritually than his paralysis was physically. And so when he saw their faith, he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I can imagine that there was a great relief that came over this man. Man, He wasn't healed physically yet. But I think that being forgiven of your sin is so much more important than having your body healed. I think that's one reason why Jesus says it first. Son, your sins are forgiven. Your spiritual condition is far more lamentable than your physical condition as long as your sins are unforgiven. So I forgive you of your sins. And uh, when the critics heard this, then they began grumbling. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And of course, they're right about that. It is only God who can forgive sins. There's no man on earth who can say, Oh, if you're sorry, I forgive you of your sins. No, our sins have been committed against God, and so it is only God who can forgive our sins. So when they complained and said, who can forgive sins but God alone? They were right. But then Jesus says, "Which is why are you thinking this in your heart? Which is easier? Oh, by the way, not only could Jesus see their faith, he could also see their doubt and skepticism. He knew what they were thinking. It's like he knows what you're thinking and what I'm thinking right now. So Jesus says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He doesn't even finish his sentence. He turns and says to the man, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately he was healed. The fact that Jesus has authority to forgive sins is bolstered by the fact that he has this kind of power. Now, which is greater, forgiving sins or healing a paralyzed man? Well, forgiving sins is the greater thing. But he was condescending to the the warped thinking of these people who were there fussing with him. In their minds... Anybody can say, your sins are forgiven. It will be blasphemous, but anybody can say that. And Jesus says, to prove to you that I'm not just saying that, but that I really can do that. Then he says to the paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, when Jesus heals, I don't think that Jesus is going against the laws of nature. I think that Jesus is restoring nature to health. I think, that he is, I think that he is saying this is the way things would be if sin had not entered the world and brought all of this debilitating sadness and sickness. And so Jesus restores him. He didn't become a sinless man, but he removes the effects of sinfulness. And Jesus removes the effects of sinfulness on a settled principle. And in order for you to see this, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. 
In one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' healing, the gospel writer says, And this was to fulfill what was written by Isaiah the prophet, Surely he hath borne our sorrows and carried our diseases. And when the gospel writer says that, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. So, on what basis did Jesus forgive sins? And on what basis did he heal people? How could he just reverse the effects of the fall temporarily in the life of these people that he healed, these people that he raised from the dead? How could he do that? Well, let's look here in Isaiah chapter 53, and we see the settled principle. It says in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And that's, that's what the New Testament author says when he heals people. This is what he's doing. Now let's go on. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, when Jesus turned back the effects of sin... It wasn't just because he was God and could do it. It was because he was the sacrifice who was going to pay for it. God does not forgive sins because he's in a good mood that day. God forgives sins because there has been a sacrifice made that allows him to be just And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the healing that Jesus did on earth was rooted in his atoning work for sin. And the ultimate healing that every child of God receives in heaven is a result of the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on him, and with his stripes we are healed. So the the only way that God will forgive sinners and bring about ultimate healing physically and spiritually is because Jesus died in the place of sinners and to satisfy divine justice. So maybe you see more clearly than ever before why you have got to receive Jesus if you're going to be forgiven of your sins and be made right with God. Because God has gone to unspeakable expense to make forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with him possible through the death of his son. And so don't don't turn away from Jesus, but receive Jesus. Receive him as the one who can forgive you of your sins. Receive him as the one who can heal you of your diseases. Sometimes he does it in this life. Usually not. But because his sacrifice is complete, then all the effects of sin are going to be rolled back so that we will be perfectly healthy forever in the bodies that he gives to us. Max, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please.